DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation, or the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of Hidden Mountain, the Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of conversations, we discuss the letters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me once again, especially in this wonderful exploration of the letters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. That's Well, thank you. I'm so delighted to be with you, Chris. And this is such a great opportunity to talk about our new saint, Elizabeth of the Trinity, and her spiritual mission in the church today. This series that we're going to be doing We'll be reading through some selected letters that she wrote while she was religious. What we're going to try to unpack is a little bit about her life, a little bit about her spiritual mission, and some of her, the doctrinal observances or insights she had, she shares in these letters that are written to her friends. How many letters do we have of hers? Oh, there are over 300 which may be a little unusual for a Carmelite. In fact, there's 342 letters. Her first uh, letters as a Carmelite, most of her letters, the first 100 letters, more or less, she wrote before she entered Carmel. And then starting uh, in about letter uh, 106, uh, she begins to write from Carmel. Uh, She's not yet a sister, but she's kind of like a postulant. Uh, And so from 106 to 342, these are all her Carmelite letters. And in this show, we'll be sharing on those Carmelite letters, but not all of them. (laughs) We'll have to select select some. Well, our first selection is going to be what is known as letter 111. Yeah, it's a letter written to a family friend, a priest. His name is Canon Angles. She writes it just after Easter on the Feast of the Annunciation. If you only knew how good it is to spend Lent, Holy Week, and Easter in Carmel, it is something unique. With what joy I sang Alleluia, wrapped in the white mantle, clothed in the dear habit that I have so longed to wear, It was quite wonderful, I assure you, to spend Holy Thursday close to him. And I would have spent the night as well, but the master wanted me to rest. But that does not matter, does it? We find him in our sleep, just as we do in prayer, since he is in everything, everywhere and always. At two o'clock, I went down to choir. You can guess what a glorious time I had and also what I said on your behalf. More and more, I love the dear grills that make me his prisoner of love. 
It is so good to think that we are prisoners in chains for each other. More than that, that we are but one victim offered to the Father for souls, so that they may be wholly consummated in unity. When you think of your little Carmelite, thank him who has given her so beautiful a part. Sometimes I think that it is an anticipated heaven. The horizon is so beautiful. It is he. Oh, what will it be like above, since here below he already makes our union so intimate? You know my homesickness for heaven. It does not diminish, for I already live in that heaven, since I carry it within me. In Carmel it seems that we are already so near. Won't you come to see me someday and continue through the grill the fine conversations you used to have with your little Elizabeth? Do you remember the first time I confided my secret to you in the cloister of Saint-Hilaire? I spent some happy moments with you, and I am asking God to reward you for the good you have done me. I still remember my joy when I was able to have a little conference with you and entrust my great secret to you. I was only a child, but you never doubted the divine call. Father Angles has been part of her family life since her early childhood. And this little episode where she has a little conference with him. In fact, they were in the cloisters of a monastery and she climbed up on his lap, whispered in her ear and said, I am going to be a nun. And she's recalling that for this priest in, in this letter. And I think it's a fun letter to start our conversation with. It is quite remarkable when we look at it, how that relationship with others and in writing these letters, there's such an intimacy and a freedom in being able to express herself. And we see that so clearly here, don't we? Well, that's one of the beauties of St. Elizabeth. A lot of people have a misconception about the life of prayer, that somehow as you go deeper in the life, you like remove yourself from the rest of humanity and you're not has connected with them. What we're going to see as we go through these letters is a beautiful familiarity. Therese of Lisieux had the same kind of gift, and it's, it's the this kind of familiarity. It's kind of like each person is feels treasured and special and unique in her life. And I think she's being sincere. I don't think she's just being polite. I think she really does connect uh, with people in a very deep way. The ones she writes to. And I think part of the reason why she's able to connect with them, and they mean so much to her, and she means so much to them, is that in her life of prayer, as she avails her heart deeper and deeper to God, who is love, God opens up new capacities for the ability to share and be present to people and to remember important things and find new ways to connect with them. Anyway, that's what's going on in this very first letter that we're looking at. So in this letter, not only is that a, a remembrance of that time in the past, what is it that she's communicating as well to this priest? 
Well, I think one of the things is she's reassuring him that she's actually very happy. And at this time of her spiritual, in her spiritual life, in her time in Carmel, this is kind of a, a little bit of a, a honeymoon period. She had been wanting to enter Carmel since she was a, a child. When she was 14, she took a vow of virginity. Uh, this was right around the same time that she won the f- first prize in the Dijon Conservatory for piano. And her, her family had kind of a sense that maybe she should go to Paris to study piano or you know, live this kind of more artist life. But she felt called to enter Carmel and to pray. And so she made this promise of herself. And her mom, uh, her mother, actually resisted this call to religious life and told Elizabeth that she could not enter religious life until she turned 21. And in the meantime, actually tried to uh, set her up with a, a young man along the way. And Elizabeth would not be deferred, and she just continued to pursue this. And so finally the mother re- relented, let her enter this Carmel. And the other thing about this Carmel is this Carmel is she can actually, when she was growing up, she could see this Carmelite monastery from the window of her bedroom. She could actually look down into the courtyard of it. It, it wasn't quite right across the street from her, but it was pretty close, close enough uh, that that it was part of uh, you know, part of her visual life ever since they had moved to that part of Dijon when she was a little girl. Now that dream that she's had to persevere and and patiently endure all these different trials and testings. Now that dream is finally realized and she is so happy and she wants to and she's sharing this joy with Canon Ingalls, Father Ingalls, who understood this desire in her heart even better than her mother did, and probably even earlier than her mother understood this desire, this passion in the heart of Elizabeth of the Trinity. In the next paragraph to come, Anthony, there's actually that very poignant moment that, as you said, that relationship with her mother, and I I can't help, it makes me a little sad that she acknowledges that her sister has come to visit her, but her mother has yet to come. I have not seen my dear mama yet. I am expecting her at the first opportunity. My little geet came last week. It had been nearly two months since we had seen each other, so you can guess what a meeting it was. I am overjoyed to see all the good God is doing in the souls of my darlings. He has taken me in order to give himself more, and I can see that I am doing them much more good in my dear Carmel than when I was near them. Oh, how good God is. I am leaving you to go to prayer, where we have the Blessed Sacrament exposed every Sunday. I only have time to ask your blessing. I know it is a fatherly one for your little Carmelite. Thank you very much for your pretty holy card. Please give my greetings to my dear Marie-Louise. Tell her she has certainly not been forgotten. Signed. Mademoiselle Elizabeth of the Trinity. And she signs it, Mademoiselle 
Elizabeth of the Trinity because she's not yet professed a sister. So, uh, this paragraph then gets to exactly what you're saying. There's a little bit of tension in the family right now. Elizabeth has found something so beautiful that she wants to give her heart to. And her mother, for whatever reason, hasn't come to visit. So there's a little bit of tension in this letter about that. At the same time that she, so she knows she's somehow maybe disappointed her mom. Uh, but uh, at the same time, she's also convinced that by making this decision, she's done something that's ultimately good for her mom and her sister and everyone she loves. That uh, by uh, uh, allowing the Lord to give himself to her more profoundly, uh, she is, um, uh, uh, he is through her able to do much more good in the world and in the life of her family than if she didn't respond to this call to Carmel. It's important for us to remember how old she is at this point, too. I mean, there is such a maturity to say and to recognize that oblation, that her life is at this moment and is becoming. Does that seem correct, Anthony? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you use the word oblation. That is going to be the specific form she takes. She's actually already thinking in those terms. She's been at this stage of her formation before she entered Carmel. She has read the story of a soul, and she's going to be continuing to read it throughout this time. In the story of the soul, one of the things Santerez shares she provides a rationale for, an explanation for her own act of oblation. Saint-Therese of Lisieux offered herself as a victim of Holocaust for merciful love. And she did this in imitation of Jesus. And a Holocaust victim is a victim completely consumed in the, in the flames. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 1. And Saint-Therese viewed those flames in her life to be the fire of God's love. Elizabeth hasn't come to articulate all of that yet. We'll see that later uh, letters. But already here, she, the sense that what she's doing is an offering and that through this offering, God is doing beautiful things in the world, including in the life of her sister and her mom, her mother, who didn't even support uh, enthusiastically her coming, but was just kind of in the end resigned to it. It's going to be a blessing for her mother even though her mother doesn't really understand uh, what it is her daughter is doing yet. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging, multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. From the Liturgy of the Hours of the Roman Rite, from the Office of Readings, 
from the Autobiography of St. Therese of the Child Jesus. Since my longing for martyrdom was powerful and unsettling, I turned to the epistles of St. Paul in the hope of finally finding an answer. By chance, the twelfth and thirteenth chapters of the first epistle to the Corinthians caught my attention. And in the first section I read that not everyone can be an apostle, prophet, or teacher, that the church is composed of a variety of members, and that the eye cannot be the hand. Even with such an answer revealed before me, I was not satisfied and did not find peace. I persevered in the reading and did not let my mind wander until I found this encouraging theme. Set your desires on the greater gifts, and I will show you the way which surpasses all others. For the apostle insists that the greater gifts are nothing at all without love, and that this same love is surely the best path leading directly to God. At length I had found peace of mind. When I had looked upon the mystical body of the church, I recognized myself in none of the members which St. Paul described, and what is more, I desired to distinguish myself more favorably within the whole body. Love appeared to me to be the hinge for my vocation. Indeed, I knew that the church had a body composed of various members, but in this body the necessary and more noble member was not lacking. I knew that the church had a heart, and that such a heart appeared to be aflame with love. I knew that one love drove the members of the church to action, that if this love were extinguished, the apostles would have proclaimed the gospel no longer, the martyrs would have shed their blood no more. I saw and realized that love sets off the bounds of all vocations, that love is everything, and that the same love embraces every time and every place. In one word, that love is everlasting. Then, nearly ecstatic with the supreme joy in my soul, I proclaimed, O Jesus, my love, at last I have found my calling. My call is love. Certainly I have found my place in the church, and you gave me that very place, my God. In the heart of the church, my mother, I will be love, and thus I will be all things, as my desire finds its direction. O God, who open your kingdom to those who are humble and to little ones. Lead us to follow trustingly in the way of St. Therese, so that through her intercession we may see your eternal glory revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. 
For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. That line where she would say, I am overjoyed to see all the good God is doing in the souls of my darlings. That's quite a gift because in most Carmels, they may never see what God is doing or what their sacrifices within within their vocation, what, what it's doing for the world and for those they love. That's true. And actually, it was a little bit out of sensitivity to the difficult family situation. The reason why Elizabeth's mother is having a hard time letting go of her daughter is that Elizabeth's dad died when she was very little. And so Mrs. Cates only has her daughter, Sabeth, and her daughter, Margaret, and Sabeth, rather than kind of being around, who's been so much part of her family and kind of the heart of her family in a lot of ways, now Sabeth is, is removed from the family. And you might think scripturally, Jesus told his disciples, if you will not renounce father, mother, brother, and sister for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. Well, Elizabeth has made that move, and it's a very painful move. And her mother, who... All she has really is in this world is her two daughters. And now one of her daughters has gone away to Carmel. This is a painful thing for her. You might think of the other scripture verse, Mary at the presentation. Simeon tells her, and a sword will pierce your heart too. Well, a sword is piercing her mother's heart. And Elizabeth is aware that it's not just her sacrifice, but the sacrifice of other people around her who very much love her in spite of the kind of the sorrow and the potential for being misunderstood, she sees God is at work, that the, the deepest thing that is happening here is not what people think and their hard time letting go. The deeper thing that's happening, happening is how God's love is beginning to shine through this in a beautiful and powerful way. That is... An important thing for us to recall, isn't it, Anthony, in those times when we're obedient to what we truly believe God's will is for us, and yet on the outside, in the moment, by responding to that that will, it looks, on in the outward appearance, it's painful, it hurts, it's going to cause others to look at us and experience all kinds of different things. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge, isn't it? It is a real challenge. But 
as we respond to it in faith and with love and as we're patient, those who don't understand the decisions that God has asked us to make or that we've made out of devotion to him, they'll come to respect those decisions. And that's what begins to happen for her mother. It's already begun to some degree. As that grace unfolds in her mother's life and in her sister's life, they get implicated in her spiritual mission as well. So you're right to make this observation. It's really hard when you go to follow the Lord and be obedient to what he's asked you to in your heart. It's really hard to deal with the disappointment that others have in you. Sometimes it's disappointment. Sometimes it's frustration. Uh, sometimes it's just just not being able to understand. It just it, it, they they just can't get it, and so they can't share your joy with you the way you would like them to. That moment is a is a kind of it's a moment of testing, and in that moment of testing, God does something beautiful. This is true if somebody was to try religious life. It's also true, too, if somebody out of conversion all of a sudden realized that the way they were living their life before, the amount of time that maybe they were spending watching TV or doing other kind of entertainment kind of things, all of a sudden they have to step back from that. and Their friends are going, whoa, you know, what's going on? Or their family doesn't understand. At first, nobody understands. And at first, they seem disappointed and frustrated. But if you persevere in love, God's God's love is going to come back, come through that situation and change everything. The first paragraph in this letter, she is expressing her immense joy at experiencing Lent in Holy Week. And in particular, the fact that she's able to receive a a, a tremendous grace by being within the walls of the Carmel, behind the grill. It's really a, such a lovely, lovely reflection that she's bringing forward here, isn't it? Uh, pretty, pretty powerful stuff. First, you're right. She's writing just after Easter. It's actually the Feast of the Annunciation, which got kind of moved because of Holy Week and, and Easter. Mm-hmm. And she's sharing this joy. She probably wanted to, to stay up all night on Holy Thursday. But when she says that it was not the master wanted me to rest, well, translation, that means her superior told her to go to bed. And <laughs> she, she views, this is a beautiful attitude that she has, everything the superior asks her to do concerning her daily life, it, she views that coming from God himself. So, it, you know, okay, Lord, if you want me to go to bed right now, I will. But she wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning and goes back down and spends some more time in prayer. And so this gives you a, a sense of the intensity and the joy and how much she's just embracing the life right now. And then she comes out with this remarkable statement. More and more, I love the dear grills that make me a prisoner of love. Those of us who have embraced the married state or our parents might understand this to some way. When you've chosen something, you are not free to choose other things in your life. And in this instance, though, she's not bemoaning what she's missing. She realizes that because she has said no to these other things in life, she's free to enjoy him more. In fact, she claims a kind of solidarity with him. 
It is good to think that we are prisoners in chains for each other. And what she means is she and Jesus, Jesus is also a prisoner in love. He has chosen to give up his freedom in a certain sense to be able to enter into our humanity and save us from our sins. He, out of obedience, he offered up his freedom to the Father for our salvation. And that mystery, she sees herself united to it now here in Carmel. More than that, we are but one victim offered to the Father for souls. And so she's identifying right now her sacrifices in Carmel, her whole life in Carmel that she's embraced with this obedient movement in the heart of God. And why did Jesus do this? And why has uh, Sabeth Elizabeth done this? So that they, souls, the, the people whom she loves, may be wholly consummated in unity. Here in uh, letter 111, in that little line, we come to the great spiritual mission of Elizabeth of the Trinity that will unfold through these letters. And that mission namely is to lead souls into a living encounter with the Holy Trinity. In that living encounter with the Holy Trinity, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the unity that is theirs, there's something transformative. It's a, it's a consummation. It's a, it's a completion of our very being. And she wants those whom she loves to know that completion that you have in God. And she realizes that by joining her life to Christ, by making of her life a sacrifice with his, she's extending his saving mystery in the world. And she's doing this just at the beginning of her religious life on April 7th, 1902. If you only knew how good it is to spend Lent, Holy Week, and Easter in Carmel, it is something unique. With what joy I sang Alleluia, wrapped in the white mantle, clothed in the dear habit that I have so longed to wear. It was quite wonderful, I assure you, to spend Holy Thursday close to him, and I would have spent the night as well, but the Master wanted me to rest. But that does not matter, does it? We find him in our sleep, just as we do in prayer, since he is in everything, everywhere and always. At two o'clock, I went down to choir. You can guess what a glorious time I had, and also what I said on your behalf. More and more, I love the dear grills that make me his prisoner of love. It is so good to think that we are prisoners in chains for each other. More than that, that we are but one victim offered to the Father for souls so that they may be wholly consummated in unity. When you think of your little Carmelite, thank him who has given her so beautiful a part. Sometimes I think that it is an anticipated heaven. The horizon is so beautiful. It is he. Oh, what will it be like above, since here below he already makes our union so intimate? You know my homesickness for heaven. It does not diminish. For I already live in that heaven, since I carry it within me. 
In Carmel, it seems that we are already so near. Well, it is, again, just so incredible to be able to have this glimpse into the heart of the of the young novitiate, the, this one who is just beginning to really blossom because of her yes, her response in obedience. Even though, as you've just said in, in this conversation, Anthony, it's cost her a suffering and, and that tear in the relationship with her mother, but yet there's such joy. That's, and that's the, the kind of the secret. Whenever we do the will of God, uh, whenever we pursue him uh, with our whole heart, um, uh, there, there are things that we have to let go of, and we are going to disappoint people who have all kinds of different expectations of us. Uh, but if we persevere in following him, there is a joy that we find in that, that nothing in this world can take away. It's not a joy that eclipses or makes these sorrows magically go away, and trials don't magically disappear when we go to serve God. In fact, we pick up our cross and we follow in the steps of our crucified master. There's going to be more trials. And yet this joy that nothing can take away is always with us because he is with us. He is the source of our joy. If we have him, we have everything. If we abandon him in order not to disappoint other people, we have lost uh, no matter whether or not we appease them and make them feel good or not, and usually we don't, even if we do, we've lost the most important thing in life, and we've robbed ourselves of the gift of the joy that could be ours. Final thoughts, Anthony? Well, this letter, uh, it, it was really hard to choose which letter to begin our mm -hmm. conversation with because so many of them are beautiful. But I settled with this letter because... Canon Ingalls, he's someone whom we're going to see in future letters that she entrusts herself, she unveils what's going in her heart in a certain way more than she does to others. It's probably because he's a priest. It's probably because she's known him since her early childhood. But for whatever reasons, uh, we get in this very first letter kind of a little snapshot of the beautiful things that are going on in the heart of Elizabeth of the Trinity and at the same time, this beautiful little snapshot, I think, gives us kind of a challenge in our own life, something to think about. Are we afraid of disappointing others? Are we afraid of frustrating them? Are we afraid that they won't understand us? And do those fears hold us back from following the Lord more closely? And I think if we look at this, this letter in particular and the example that Elizabeth has given us, uh, we'll see that by offering those things to God and not letting ourselves be influenced by them, but instead making ourselves intent on doing his will, there is a joy that God has for us, a joy that can carry us through people's misunderstandings and disappointments and frustrations, and a joy that can make all the difference not only in our life, but in theirs too. Well, what a joy it is to be able to say, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, pray for us. Amen. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris.
You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or download the free Discerning Hearts app located at the iTunes and Google Play app stores. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.